So this morning is the third sermon in, uh, this year in our ECC series uh, of ECC Touchstones. Welcome, Transformation, and Presence. We've covered presence and we've covered transformation. Presence is about being present to our neighbors in uh, word and deed with the good news of Jesus Christ, bearing fruit for the kingdom uh, in our presence to the community. And transformation is about becoming more and more like Jesus, or as the Apostle Paul put it, uh, having Christ formed in us. Today we have a guest speaker who's going to speak to us around the ECC touchstone of welcome, uh, the desire the, to seek to be hospitable and gracious to all people. Todd Slechta is, uh, serves currently as the president and CEO of Covenant Ministries of Benevolence. That is an organization that partners with our denomination in ministries of care and, and support and comfort for those who are in need. Well before that, he was uh, the executive director of Camp of, uh, I'm going to do it, Covenant Bible College. Uh, international, which they don't exist anymore, but he, he did that for almost 11 years. I tell you that so you understand how deep his roots go in, in the covenant. And a few of us have gotten to know him a little better recently because we've been gathered with him and some other leaders in our denomination to discuss CCDC that you heard about earlier and how to make that better and what we're doing, that sort of thing. So I'm glad that Todd can come and speak to us. Todd is uh, passionate, energetic, fun-loving, and he is uh, greatly committed to uh, the work of the kingdom of God. Would you welcome him as he comes forward to share with us? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God, we thank you for Todd. We thank you for the calling on his life, the gifts upon him, Lord, for all he has done in service to your kingdom um, and in your mission. We ask your blessing on him now that as he brings the word to us, Lord, uh, that your spirit would flow through him, speak to him, speak through him to us. Help us to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much. Good morning. Uh, the, the exists no more thing. I just, for the record, it wasn't my fault. Um, and uh, Chuck Potts actually is one of my recovering students. So thank you for taking him in and walking him through his healing process. Now, it is good to be here this morning. I've heard a lot about you collectively uh, before I, I get started here a little bit, though, I, I, as, as much as it's a privilege to be out at churches, as much as I do, my wife and I um, are acutely aware that when we're out with other churches, we're not at home with our faith community. And so on behalf of Uptown Covenant Church, Pastor Jeremy Falk and all the brothers and sisters at Uptown, we greet you and say we are welcoming uh, to be working together with you in the broader mission of the covenant. So uh, on behalf of Jeremy, I want to make sure that's the case. Um, you know what? My role, I, 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 here's my background. I, right now I am working with Covenant Ministries of Benevolence, but I am an ordained minister in good standing, last I checked. And we are, um, I, I feel like my background is in Old Testament and rabbinical thought. So you can see how I ended up, you know, in healthcare for a while, public education for a while, and now where I'm at, because that's what Old Testament and rabbinical thought people do in their way. It's a straight line. But my, I don't know if, I, the, the preacher-teacher thing, I don't know if I'm a preacher or if I'm a teacher, but I, would, I know this, though. I do know this, that uh, my, my job is to take something, lift it up, turn it ever so slightly so you can see it in a fresh way, and it will unlock new things. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Scripture, um, it, the scripture assumes that you know a lot more than you do. 50 years from now, 60 years from now, when someone says 9-11, it will not have the same poignancy as it does for you now today. So if you're reading some correspondence now and somebody says 9-11, you have all the sights, sounds, smells, feelings, all those things that went with that, right? But 50, 75 years from now, 
that won't be the case. It'll have diminished, and there'll be some nuances that are lost, that if they're reading a correspondence about 9-11, they won't remember it, or won't know all those details. If we better understood the customs, traditions, theology, and culture of the biblical era, we'd realize there's a lot more to the story that the Bible assumes you know is going on. And, and I'll tell you what, it's important to know the whole story. Because if you don't know the whole story, if you're missing a few pieces, bad things can happen. Let, let me show you a video clip, all right? Uh, something here. Let's see if this works. Is there sound? He's just making a dinner for his, his, his um, significant other. Yeah, one detail. One detail I'm makes all the difference. Here's another one. Sponsor of you know, again, NFL. here's another one for you. This has a fraction for the uh, given mild center. So he can be able to go home tomorrow. Daddy's going to be so excited. That killed him. One detail. One little detail. You know, one of my favorite movies of all times is My Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many of you have seen this one? It's one of my favorites of all times. Um, it catches the truth of you don't just marry a person, you marry their family. Uh, there's, uh, my, my favorite scene is this one where um, she's, uh, Tula is bringing her boyfriend home, who's not Greek, by the way. And there's a long story in my own family. Um, my, we're all Czechs. My, my brother married the girl across the street. Czech married Czech. The community rejoiced. Um, my sister married the boy down the block. Czech married Czech. The community rejoiced. I married a Swedish Norwegian. True story, my grandparents boycotted our wedding. That's, in 1989, my parents were like, yeah, she's not Czech. So they didn't come. If she, but this idea, though, in, in our family is, um, if, you, if Tula, if, if, if she accepts Eon, her boyfriend, then the whole family will accept him. Because if she accepts him, then they will accept him. You are now part of the family. I, I kid you not, if you were to visit my mom and dad in Berwyn, uh, well, in Downers Grove, and you knock on the door, and I, I, I'm not even making this up, but you say, hey, I, your son preached at our church a couple weeks ago, and he gave me your address. They'd be like, well, come on in. And they would bring you in, they would sit you down, they would start feeding you. And then they'd ask you, like, whose side are you on between Grandpa Joe and Uncle Al? I mean, they're still fighting. Obviously, you need an opinion. If you're a friend of my son, then you're a friend of my family. Czech hospitality includes lots of food, lots of laughter, lots of intrusive questions into your life, and being pulled and lobbied into the family fights. However, with one exception. See, my sister was put on this earth for me to make fun of. But if you make fun of her, ah, you're, now you're meddling. We rally around our family pretty quick, even though we are pretty uh, open to everyone, but everyone, family's family, and we draw the line there. Now, I had the privilege of, uh, I used to take educational pilgrimage to Israel, take my students there, and we would purposely spend at least one or two nights in the, the desert community and the Bedouin community for the night, learning about Bedouin customs that are, you see in the Old Testament and bleed into the New Testament. Now, here's the thing about Bedouins, um, and it was, by the way, is sitting in that 
community, uh, taking those trips, that I learned about the biblical view of hospitality and what it means. See, Bedouins were often on the move. As they followed and sought land, they had to go and move with their goats and their, and their herds. Now, why do you think they were transient? Why do you think they moved around so much? This is the interactive part. Why do you think they moved around a lot? Wait, IRS, what'd you say? Oh, yeah, looking for, they have pasture land. That's better than the IRS. Pastures or water. Or they, they had to move and graze where, there was, where, there was, where they could find uh, foliage or where they could find water. So they're uh, so they often on the move. And they tended to be um, isolated from civilization. Therefore, they became what you call a hardy breed, all right? Um, a, a, a group of people that were extremely self-reliant. Part of that survival entailed the whole family being part of the effort to survive. Everyone had a role from an early age to the elderly to survive. The only thing that I can think of in the American story um, that, that comes close to that, I, I, I think, would be um, homesteading in the 1800s. You relied on yourselves. You relied on your families. Um, you, refi- you relied on other homesteaders in the, in the area. Anyone who you needed help from, they, they, would, they were obligated to help you because they were in the same situation as you. Anyone who was a Bedouin recognized the need to help others who were in similar situations. There was sort of an understanding that you were obligated to help if they were in crisis because they were facing similar things and you would want them to help you if you were in crisis. There was sort of this obligation that you would help. Once again, much like the homesteaders in the 1800s. Now, rooted in this ethos, um, there, were, there arose within the Bedouin culture a form of hospitality that I don't think we can even begin to fathom today. Giving hospitality to someone, to someone was, was perhaps the highest form, the highest form of virtue, the, the, most, um, the most important characteristic of a clan, the ultimate statement of, an, of a person's integrity, and yes, it even spoke to how faithful they were. They that were hospitable to the stranger were held in esteem as a person of faith, integrity, and wisdom. In short, they were a person to be respected and obeyed. In fact, the idea of extending hospitality as a means for potentially encountering the divinity is alive in the New Testament. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. There was an understanding in this culture that by being hospitable to the stranger, by being that kind of ingratiating, welcoming, you would encounter the divine. It held that kind of esteem in the culture. In fact, um, uh, when, you, when you come to a Bedouin tent, um, how do I explain this? See, if a stranger came from, uh, uh, was wandering through and came upon a Bedouin community, the Bedouin communities were set up a certain way. The Hajj, the head of it, the head of the family was in the center. And then his immediate family was in a circle of tents around him. And then as you grew increasingly, uh, like second, first, second, third cousins, you kept going further and further away from the circle. Your second and third cousins were on the outside. They were the first ones if you were attacked. They were third cousins. You know, we didn't care. So that's how it was set up. But in the center, now, the interesting thing is, um, uh, when a stranger came to a Bedouin encampment, he would immediately be sent to the tent of the patriarch to be introduced. Um, he would, he would, because the stranger was most likely going from one city to another city. And it meant that they had news from the outside world. 
And so they wanted to share it. Because it, so therefore the patriarch would invite the stranger for coffee, and he would grind the coffee. But here's the interesting thing. This is the coffee grinders of the time. They're not those little compact ones. They're the cylinders. You dump the beans in, then you have this pole, and you crush the beans until they're ready to be brewed. You with me so far? So they're doing this. Now, each one of the clan members, each family had their own distinct rhythm. Now, you following me what that might mean? If they started grinding coffee, they would do a certain rhythm, and you'd know which family was grinding coffee. And the Hodge had his own rhythm. And by the way, it, it, I think I have it. Um, it would produce a rhythm or sound, and it would sound something like this. How about it? You got a good beat, you can dance to it. Then everyone would, would they'd pour coffee, they would drink coffee, and the visitor would update. Everybody would hear that rhythm. They'd start to come to the, the tent. When they're all gathered, they'd drink coffee, and then they'd turn to the visitor and say, what news have you of the world? And the visitor would begin to share what they, what they heard or what they've seen or what they've observed. Now, given the vulnerable nature of the existence in the desert, at some point in that, in that time, the patriarch would ask, are you, are you wanting to stay the night? Which ultimately they were. And if they said yes, then what would happen is the sword, they would take the scimitar. He would take his scimitar. The sword was symbolic of both power and protection. The patriarch would then take the sword and hand it to the guest, the head of that family, the head of that clan, and in this manner indicate that they were now part of the clan for their duration of their stay, that they were considered family. This meant in every sense of the word that they were family entitled to the rights, privileges, and protection thereof as long as they were in their care. In fact, these guests of the clan would assume a status of honor that transcended the biological children. Did you hear what I'm saying? That for their stay, the guest was more important than the children of the, of the Hodge. They would get the tent right next to the Hodge. They would move out their firstborns and say, you move out a little bit further, then the ring would all move out. They would assume that position. It was, and by the way, it was considered the ultimate shame to not extend hospitality to someone. But it was even more shameful, more shameful if harm came to someone that was under your hospitality and care. One would rather die. One would rather sacrifice if it came to that, others under their care, rather than let harm come to someone to whom you've extended hospitality and whom you've extended protection. As far as hard as this is for us to fathom, it is the sacrificial protection that is at play and at work. Do you remember when you read passages like Genesis 19, where two angels come into the town, they extend hospitality, men from the city surround the home. Remember? Does this ring any bells? It's, I'm sure it's nobody's life verse, but do you remember it? And he offers up instead, he goes, don't do this to this. They're, they're my guest. Here, I'll give you my two daughters. And we go, what? That's what's at work here. They took him in. They offered him protection. They take the status above their own children. And so when harm was coming, he offered up his daughters. That's the same thing that's at work in Judges 19, similar situation. 
Men surround the house. And again, don't do this thing. They're under my protection and care. Take my children. Now let's face it. When we talk about hospitality in the United States, it's usually how to set the table. Right? That's not what's the biblical idea of hospitality. It goes way, way beyond that. And that's why Martha Stewart, who's sort of like our, 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 our um, hallmark of hospitality, she ain't a Bedouin, I'll tell you that. But the reality is neither are we. And here's the fun part. Once the ritual was done, the, the scimitar was handed over and all that was done, then as, as, and the guest or the head clan, the head of the visiting clan, would be seen as um, the, the, the guest of honor and be treated like a king. Um, and so, uh, you know, here's a great, my, when I take my students, I was the head, and so they had to serve me. And it was by far my favorite part of the trip. You could see she's very thrilled. And then the music would start, and tons of food would come out. And, uh, and, and so you'd get this wonderful music. It sounded something like this. I still love the camels in the back. They're like, oh, not again. Now, let's stop for a second. Remember I said at the beginning, one small detail, the Bible assumes you know a bunch of things? Remember that? The Bible assumes you knew all of that. Did you know that? No. But the Bible assumes you did. Now, knowing that, let's take a look at today's passage. Shall we? Well, we are, so... With all that new understanding, let's take a look at this passage. And teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door's locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Your fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? If you ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. No, you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father the Holy Spirit to those who asks. Now, the common interpretation of this, bio, this passage, and I've heard it probably preached 20 plus times in my career. The common interpretation is we need to be persistent in prayer. That's usually the interpretation I hear. One of the most often quoted verses in the Bible uh, by a sh- was, was that short and strange parable, right? Don't, you know, just keep on knocking and it will, the door will be open. Keep, you know, that you, that, we quote that all the time. Don't give up. Don't have, little, don't have little faith. Keep on keeping on. That resonates with our North American blue-collar work ethic, doesn't it? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. God helps those who help themselves. It's in the Bible, though it's not. 
Yeah. If you quoted that and said it's in the Bible, stop quoting that. It's not. I, we, we'd say it's woven into our culture. You know the phrase, persistence pays? That's in our culture. Here, let me test you. Don't take what for an answer? No, don't take no for an answer. How about this one? If at first you don't succeed, that's right. How about this one? The squeaky wheel gets the grease every time. You see, it's woven into our culture. You guys didn't even have to think. It just came out. That's how deeply embedded in it it is in us. Just try harder. Work harder. That's the issue. Keep praying. And if you don't pray hard enough, pray harder. I don't believe that's what this passage is about at all. Or at the, at the very least, persistence in prayer is not the primary point of this passage. Keep these ideas from Bedouin hospitality in mind. And we're going to go back to the passage. Keep these ideas. The expectation is that you will provide for a guest if they show up. The shame comes from failing to provide for a guest. The expectation that neighbors are obligated to help is part of this culture. Keep that in mind, and let's go back to the passage. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread, and you say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed, and I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Traditionally, we focus on the fact that this late-night forger was in need, and he turned to his brother for help, like we turn to God for help. I would suggest to you, however, that there's the shock value. Where's the shock value in this thing now that you know about Bedouins? Don't bother me. That's the shameful part in here. A guest showed up. He didn't have what he needed. He knew he's obligated to provide. He goes to his family member and says, I need some help. And he says, don't bother me. We're already in bed. That would have been unfathomable in this culture. That response would have been unfathomable. The idea that his brother, his neighbor, would have refused to help him. The focus of this passage hinges on verse 8, where in the New Living Testament, it says, New Living Translation says shameless persistence, and the NIV translates it shameless persistence as well, keeping the Bedouin traditions in mind, would it interest you to know that there are some English translations out there that interpret it this way. In order to protect his reputation, he will respond. In order, the point I wish to make is that someone's reputation is at stake here, and there are only two choices. It's either the one who is receiving the guest that he didn't know was coming, and by the way, they didn't have texting, so they didn't know he was coming. It wasn't, how rude, you showed up and didn't let me know. We're talking a time when you can't call ahead. So it's either that guy who wasn't ready to receive them, or, or the one who didn't respond when help was requested. But as we read on in verse 9 and 10, I think the passage demonstrates on whom the proverbial spotlight is being shown. And so I tell you, 
Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open for you. Do you know what he's saying? Keep knocking. You know why? Because people are going to start turning on their tent lights and going, what's going on here? What's all this noise making? Oh, it's you guys? What, you had a friend? You didn't, you, he what? He said no? He knows that that's what's going to happen. He knows his reputation is on the line. He knows that if he knocks loud enough and makes a big enough scene, everyone's going to wake up and the whole community will be like, are you kidding me? He came for bread because there was hospitality needed, and you said no? That's where the focus is on this passage. It's right there. Too often, we read this as, see, just press it, be consistent, and God will finally cave in when he'll wear him down. But think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Is that the kind of relationship you have with God in prayer? You're the petulant, stubborn child who finally wears God down as the parent by being petulant? I had some other words, but I'm editing. Think about that. Is that the kind of relationship we have with God? If I, if, I, if I pester you enough, God will be like, fine, fine. Just, just here, fine. That's not what the relationship or pulse and heart of God at all. Think about that for a moment. In this chapter, what is it that the disciples have asked, and what is it that they're seeking? Do you remember what they asked Jesus? Again, the interactive part. How to pray. Luke chapter 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, he finished one of the disciples, came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. The chapter starts with the disciples asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. So Jesus teaches them what we now call the Lord's Prayer in verses 2 through 4. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. You guys know that one, right? He teaches them that. So he teaches them that, but he doesn't stop there. The disciples want to know about prayer, so he continues in verse 5, and that's where our passage starts today. And then he says, then teaching them more about prayer, Jesus gives some examples. And I would say he gives two examples of what prayer is not supposed to be like. The first example is a story that contradicts all Bedouin tradition and expectations about hospitality. And then in the, these couple of verses, he throws in these two ones. Your fathers, like, it's almost like he's, he's driving home. Your fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? The implied answer, no, you don't. So if you were sitting there going, I don't know, that'd be kind of funny. The implied answer is no. All right? Or if they ask for an egg, do you go, <laughs> have a scorpion instead? Of course not. Of course not. You could, you could almost hear the incredulous tone in Jesus' voice. Come on, you guys. God is not like that brother who won't get up and help, even though he's no, he knows he's supposed to. And he's not like this, where if you ask him for something, he's going to go, ha, take this instead. That is not who God is. You can hear it in this tone. He'll answer you. You don't have to shame God into action. You can almost hear Jesus being elevated by saying, be serious, people. Do you think God is a father when asked for a fish, gives him a snake? Seriously? Do you really think God is like a father who when he asks for an egg, you give him a scorpion? Seriously? Is that what you think God is like? Are you, are you kind of like where you pray and God goes, yeah, don't bother me now, it's too late. Do you really think God is like that? If you people, and it ends with, if you people who know, who are nothing like God, 
can see the difference, how much more will God understand the difference? That's the implied statement at the end. Do you see the difference in the passage? More often than not, it's, pre- it's, it's preached as, keep praying, keep praying, pull yourself up. If you didn't pray enough, pray more. And if you need to get a just keep going, and God will finally cave in and go, fine. It's actually the other way around. It's saying, guess what? You've got the wrong image of God. You've got the wrong image of God here. It's true for us today, the believers who follow Jesus today, as it was for the faithful Bedouins 5,000 plus years ago. Do you see what's going on here? You are part of the family of God. ECC in, 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 in Lafayette is part of God's family. You're in the tent structure somewhere. You have a tent here somewhere. Yours happens to be in Lafayette, Indiana. Mine happens to be in Uptown. But it is part of a giant Bedouin community of faithful people. You are part of God's family. And God has welcomed you in, and he summoned the rest of his family to, from all over to come and listen to you and, t- and say, come, gather around. This, they just came. We just got accepted into the covenant as a, as a church, Uptown. And it was like, come, join the family. Tell us your story. And we told what we saw and what we experienced. And then, it, then it's like God says, you know what? You are now part of my, of my family. And I'll tell you what, now that you're part of my family, I'm going to extend protection over you. You are now part of my family. You are elevated in my family. And guess what? If, if, if there's ever any threat or harm come to you, I would even sacrifice my own, what? Son, maybe? Maybe I'd sacrifice my own son to protect you. You hearing me? You feeling me on this? That passage changes quite a bit. He'd even sacrifice his own son if it came to it to save you. In fact, he did. And he's already done that for you. He's done that for Lafayette Church. He's done that for believers all over the, the world. See, Christian hospitality, God's not asking you to prepare a 10-course banquet to com- complete with music and dancing. God's not asking you to protect someone at the cost of your own children. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what God is asking you, though, to do. I'll tell you what God is asking you to do. Invite someone over for dessert or coffee, and not just the usual group. Invite someone over that's awkward and spend time with them. He is asking you to do that. How, he is asking you to throw an extra burger or two on the grill and invite the neighbor who you... You sort of know, uh, you nod as you go into garages and your garage door goes up and down. Then you nod. You kind of know him. Invite him over and have a hamburger. He is telling you to do that. That would be hospitable. That would be Bedouin hospitality. That would be welcoming. That would have a welcoming quality. He, he is saying, how about volunteer at Miller Elementary School or help with the family night dinners over there? He, that, he is asking you to do that. That would be welcoming. That would be generous. That would be Bedouin-like. That would be biblical. How about write that note and send that email or text, make that call to thank someone, or just let them know that you're thinking about them. He's definitely asking you to do that. Definitely. Come on, folks. We could text now. We don't even have to write a note. 
He, he is saying, give your time on Thursday night dinners at, the, at the, the Bauer Community Center. That'd be a welcoming thing to do. That would be biblical. That would be Bedouin-like. He is saying, have the heart of a disciple which says, teach me. Teach me. I may be wrong about some things and I want to learn. I'll tell you what, in our culture today, and especially in Protestant evangelicalism, we are so sure about everything that we're probably wrong about a lot. But a disciple's heart says, teach me. And at the heart of teach me says, I have to learn. And beyond that is, I might not know everything. That's the heart. He is telling you to do that. He is, now I'm going to start meddling. That was just being nice now. Now I'm going to start meddling. He is saying, pursue what is right versus asserting your personal rights. Oh, you have a lot of rights as a U.S. citizen that you can, you can hang your hat on. Are they biblical? And should you? Or do you give up your rights sometimes? And by the way, Siri just found something on the web for me. How about that one? Now I am meddling. Do what is right versus your personal rights. Work for peace, healing, justice, and unity beyond thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers are nice, but they actually don't physically change something for most people who are hurting. Maybe helping with the housing ministry. They need, I saw on the slide, upkeep, landscaping, donations. These are people trying to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Why would we make it harder for them? Remember that you were a traveler in need of being taken in, of needing to be fed, of needing to be cared for, and yes, protected to the point that God was willing to sacrifice his son. So be ready to sacrifice for the traveler, whatever that looks like in Lafayette, that comes across your life's journey and interrupts it. Because being welcoming means being inconvenienced. Being welcoming means your rhythm is interrupted. Last thought. Would you agree that the Bedouin idea of hospitality, it's a little better than Martha Stewart's? Yeah, I thought so. Would you agree that the hospitality of God is even greater and more loving and more sacrificial than we might have given him credit for? Would you agree that at various times you are both the receiver of God's hospitality and the extender of such hospitality to the community of Lafayette and beyond? I'm gonna, we're going to close praying together. Because again, remember, this passage started out with the disciples saying, how do we pray? Jesus, tell us how to pray. And so, as uh, the worship team comes up, we'll pray together um, the Lord's Prayer. I think it's right here. Let's pray together as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.